Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to The Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I talked with Lonnie Asaf. Lonnie is a startup marketer living and working in New York City. Currently, she's the marketing lead at Maven, a marketplace for cohort-based courses taught by top industry experts. Previously, she was the first marketer at Alpha, a community of 100,000-plus women in tech. In this conversation, we talked about user psychology and behavioral design and first principles thinking and how to invoke all of this in your marketing efforts. We also talked about learning, education, cohort-based courses, and the drive and or motivation to learn and improve. We also talked about free will for a brief moment. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Lonnie Asaf. Like there are a lot of bigger concepts that I've been having a lot of discussions with people on recently, which is like, I think for the first time in my career, especially because I'm working on the problem of learning, it's like everything is a resource. Like really I'm experiencing like every conversation, every thing that happens in my work, it informs my life and everything that happens in my life informs my work. And it's like, there's this amazing synergy that I felt, I think, especially in the last six months for the first time in my career. And and I remember telling people like what I felt at Maven was like <laughs> employee company fit. Like I was like, I've found it. Like it's like product market fit, but for me. Mm. Um, this is like that work-life integration concept. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, people say work-life integration, but it's more than just integration. It's actually like, oh, it feels like it's the rising tide lifts all boats concept, which is like the more you're synthesizing ideas from one place to the other, like the better you are in all areas is kind of how it feels. Or yeah, like every conversation being a resource or every person you meet, you know, it sort of all feeds in to like the central being of you. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's just a big (laughs) We're going to have to pull that thread, make it a little bit more concrete, but I like where you're going. Yeah. (laughs) Well, if you're ready to jump in, I have a question that could relate to that, perhaps. Okay, sure. Let's let's jump in. What does dancing have to do with marketing? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So my background as a dancer is sort of parallel in many ways, I think, to my journey as a marketer, actually, which is that I started dancing and I was a ballerina. So I was trained on a very particular ways to do things, stare at yourself in a mirror for 20 hours a week, you know, down to like the perfect hand positioning. Like this is the way, and there's only one way and there's a right and there's a wrong. And so very like top down really is like a philosophy of dance. And if I look at the evolution of like where I've gone with dance in my life and where I am now, I go to these like ecstatic dance gatherings that are just about like mindful movement, like whatever is surging through your body, let it out, you know? And it's like the opposite in so many ways of how I previously trained to be a dancer. And it's interesting because I sort of feel like there's a similar journey with marketing, which was when I was building my first business, when I was building a photography business, I was like learning everything online. I was like, okay, I got to figure out the right way to do this. I got to figure out the right way to do this. And then going into startups and being like, ah, it's not that simple. Like, it's not just a recipe that I can necessarily follow here. Um, and finding, finding like the flow and finding the, finding the gut level instinct and like how to infuse that with the data analysis and with all the other inputs that you're like synthesizing as a startup marketer, you're like, you know, managing all these different, um, disciplines and 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 maybe all these different areas in the company because you're a marketing team of one, at least in my case. So yeah, I think that's what I've found is that there is more, like to be a really good marketer, there is more gut level instinct and it's like important to continue to hone that. And that leads to, I think, much more freedom and creativity and success in the long term, similar to the the approach that I've taken with dance. Do you think it's important or necessary first to develop those frameworks or quote unquote, the right way of doing things before you have that intuition and trust in yourself? 
Like I took salsa classes and I didn't know anything. I was like, you know, think early in your career, you're always looking for the right way to do things. And you're very nervous about doing things the wrong way. That's how I felt. And then I got the basic steps down and I was like, oh, I can just have fun with this from here. Yeah. Yeah. Popular knowledge would definitely say, yes, you have to know the rules so you can break them. I'm not sure though, because I, what I do see is like, especially in the youngest generation, I have like two younger sisters. So I have sisters who are Gen Z and they're not really concerned with like learning the frameworks or the ways of doing things. They're like, no, I think we're going to follow our curiosities instead and like see where that takes us. So I actually don't know. And if I'm looking at it from a dance perspective, I certainly didn't know how to be a ballerina. I didn't didn't need to train myself like that to be able to dance and just enjoy Mm. myself to the music these days. So it's like, if anything, sometimes it was like counterproductive. Um, so yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that you necessarily, I think there are different ways to get there. I think that is the approach that I certainly followed was like first learn the rules and, and read up on all the popular ways of doing things and, and see what all the experts say. Um, and then figure out how you can infuse, how I can infuse that into my own like version of being a really good marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are a lot of routes to get there and it's not necessarily only a top down, learn the philosophy first way. Like you gotcha. can also just fail fast and start building a business when you're 14, which like plenty of people are doing that now. So, <laughs> so when you step into something new, like for, for instance, you, you just started working on lifestyle, like life cycle marketing, correct? Yeah. And is this new to you? Have you done life cycle before or? It's totally new. <laughs> okay. So how are you approaching this? Like what's, what's your mental model here? Yeah. So I think that, you know, I follow what many people say to do. And I also find very helpful, which is I reach out to a bunch of lifecycle marketers at other companies to get a sense of like, but really, really high level, like, what is this lifecycle thing? Like, how do you think about the concept of lifecycle marketing? Because you can go, I was just looking at someone's site today who's who's a lifecycle marketer. And he was like, you know, it's all about the in-app messages that you send at a particular time. And I was like, that doesn't quite apply to my situation. So how do I think about it at a higher level? Like, what is it really? And through the process of just talking to lifecycle marketers at different companies, what's been really helpful is people that have like gotten into this role in the last month or two. So sort of similar space where they figured out just a little bit more than me, <laughs> but they're not so deep in it that they're, they've forgotten the like real high level stuff. Uh, and yeah, making the connection that it's really it's all about how does someone grow with your product and how do we connect the moments in this person's life to the moments that your like product can offer or the moments where your product can be helpful or the service or the thing that you're building. So like in the case of Maven thinking a lot about it, like when do you think about learning new skills? How, where do you go? And then how can Maven sort of be alongside you through the journey of helping you figure out what you want to learn, how you want to learn it, what you're going to do with it, the transformation that can occur, like all of those pieces. And so I I knew I was going to be interested in it because I sort of had a sense that it was some combination of like psychology aligned with messaging, aligned with like channel strategy and all those things I'm already interested in. And I love the holistic vision that it feels like life cycle marketing brings, which is like, how do we connect all these things together with the customer's journey or the your user's journey sort of at its core and really like where they are in their, their motivations, their challenges, their life, um, which I love. Right, right. Um, so to back up just for a second, um, this is a noob question, but I'm very pedantic. Um, mm-hmm. What is life cycle marketing? How would you define it? Well, this is the best definition that I've heard from the folks I've spoken to so far, that's really resonated with me, which is that lifecycle marketing is about how are you helping your users grow with your product? Like that is it Mm -hmm. um, at a super high level. And I'm letting that guide me. Like I'm not, it's interesting because I'm not being very prescriptive at all because I'm very much so instead coming at, coming at it from the perspective of like, I've already been at Maven for you know almost a year and a half, and I've worked. I really understand our students. I really understand our instructors. I really understand the business. So I'm starting from like that place of being embedded in that first, mm-hmm. and then thinking about okay, like how can I now, n- knowing what I'm learning about lifecycle, like apply things that work well in that discipline to what I already know about our business, but not the other way around. Like not like throwing out all our systems to be like, well, now we need a lifecycle system because it's like mm-hmm. we already have elements of that. We're already thinking about like the light bulb moment for students. We're already like 
you know, that's already imbued into the product and imbued into our marketing in different ways. So now my process is more so just thinking about, okay, what is our ideal state, knowing what I know about the business? And then sort of what's the gap from where we are today to how I can get us to that more ideal state? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And for the surface area of the problem, like, is is there anything that you can exclude from what lifecycle marketing is? Like, does it include the point at which somebody becomes a customer or is it sort of like taking off from that point where you try to maybe maximize value retention activation metrics like whatever those things are like what surface area are you kind of looking into that's a great question and this is something (laughs) that i also asked the lifecycle marketers i talked to because i was like well it matters how you're you're if if you think about a lot of lifecycle marketing is done via email especially in a product like maven especially a lot of similar products so if you think about um, what, how did we get this email? Like, where do these people come to us from? And that really matters because that really under, that really helps you understand where these people are and how they found you and what they're thinking about and what their challenges are. Like what blog post did they read before they gave you their email address? Or did they come in, in Maven's case, it's a marketplace. Did they come in via a specific instructor? Did they come in via a waitlist for a specific course? Or did they come in via like our AI page? That's like just all about leveling up in AI. Like these things are obviously very relevant in thinking about how to design an ideal lifecycle marketing system. So where I've landed is that the discovery part is a very important part of my work. So like that initial, the part that comes before what would maybe be activation, what would be sort of the ongoing relationship. I'm thinking about the life cycle relationship as beginning when we get an email address into our system. That's like mm-hmm. when it begins. But it, I am currently spending like quite a bit more time thinking about the discovery piece and thinking about um, the matching, the interest picker, like all the things we're building on our site um, and and all the steps that happen before someone gives us their email address. Cause I think that that does matter a lot. And it's like, yeah, when you're at a startup, you can't really just be like, well, that's not my job or like someone else can think about it. Cause uh, no one else will think about it. So. <laughs> right. Right. Otherwise you're, you're just kind of doing surface level things too. It's like, if you were just doing CRO, but you had no understanding of where the users came from in the first place, like what the traffic sources were, you're just tweaking buttons and text. Like you have no idea, like if they came in with this intent or if they've come five or 10 times and like check the pricing page, like that gives you the information you need to do the tactical layer of, of changes. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. I think that hopeless, like, you, I have found in my career over and over when I've taken a holistic approach to a problem, a very first principles approach to a problem, that's where I'm really able to drive the impact. And that's where I'm really able to like see the impact I'm making on the problem I'm trying to solve. Um, but I find it so helpful and relevant in everything I do to like zoom out. <laughs> yeah. I'm noticing that you, you start at kind of the foundational layer and it's like for lifecycle marketing, the things, the threads that I'm pulling are the, the necessary ingredients would be, um, sort of a goal or I guess like customer and business value alignment. So like what, what is an ideal outcome? And that could differ based on segments or like different types of customers, but you need that in place to, to aim somewhere. And then two pieces that I heard you mention, or at least allude to uh, analytics. So understanding like where people came from, what their behaviors are, being able to segment uh, different users and customers and figure out like, you know, usage patterns or email open patterns, things like that. Yeah. And then, and then a fundamental understanding of, of user psychology. So the psychology yeah. is a huge piece. Would you, totally. uh, are, do you agree with those? And am I missing any factors that are kind of in that foundational layer? No, I think that, I think those two are like the primary foundational layer. Yeah, for sure. And then you sort of build up from there and have like this tactical layer where it's like, okay, we'll trigger this email message at this point. And then it yeah. becomes much more of like a behavioral design exercise. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. And you're you're really yeah. into behavioral design. That's something you mentioned on the forum. That's we, we talked about that in person. Um that's like an interest of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things I'm trying to learn <laughs> and figure out and 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 sort of via a combo of like actually online courses, a behavioral design course that was offered via rational labs, like learning and then also on the job learning. So sort of a combo of both things to figure out how quickly I can level up in this skill that yeah feels highly 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 relevant to everything that we do as marketers like what, what yeah. drove your interest in this in behavioral science user psychology all of, all of that hmm. yeah i think i've always when i look back i've always been interested like i've always read books you know like dan Arelli's books or um um james clear's books i don't know maybe self-help book genre but like Beyond that, like 
why we behave the way that we do as humans. Like I just have always found it really, really, really fascinating. Um, and I think I like the, like, I like someone like Seth Godin that talks about, uh, he has a quote that's marketing is humanity. The stories we tell each other, um, about who we are essentially. And I like that. I've always been that sort of a marketer, which is like, it's about stories. It's about people. It's about, you know, so I think that the behavioral design is sort of the like tech accepted way or like products um, term to like infuse essentially what is that thinking into the the work that we do at startups. So uh, I find it like a very natural evolution of what I was already interested in. And I've just, I think I've just seen it be so powerful. Like I've just seen such compelling case studies of like, how this stuff works beyond anything else. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm big on like changes like that, that can make a huge impact. Um, so I'm big on infusing behavioral design principles and, and sort of aligning things with natural motivations and, la- and natural moments of people, which is why like life cycle is also such a natural evolution for me in my career to be going into that. Yeah. Why Why do we do what we do is such a fascinating question. And you're going to have to forgive me for this next question. Uh, okay. But <laughs> do you do you believe in free will? Or are we yeah. all just a bundle of neurons and experiences and genetics that are responding to nudges and, and environmental factors? Do we have choice in what we do? It's really interesting. I definitely believe in free will. And I don't really have a great why for that other than it's just a sense it's just an intuition which aligns with the second thing which is i am a person that believes in some you know universal force that also exists so something around like you're meant to experience what you're meant to experience or when you get a no there's a reason for that like so i do think that in addition to all being kind of beings that are operating within our own free will there's also a force that is with us as well <laughs> mm-hmm. but there's clearly some impact or influence on 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 that like cho- choice in isolation probably you know like i feel like there's things that can influence that for example uh you work at maven that does cohort-based courses and i would assume that you've seen different completion rates and retention rates and all of that stuff based on if somebody does a cohort-based course or a self-guided so yeah. There's there's some sense like I bet the people who sign up for self-guided courses believe that they want to finish them. But for some reason there's external factors that allow them or that allow cohort-based courses to have higher completion rates. Yeah. Yeah, I mean honestly I think a lot of that has to do with the reality that we're social creatures. And I'm in a cohort-based course right now on Maven. I'm taking Matt Lerner's startup growth course, which is amazing. Um, And I'm finding it so... Like even today, we had a session at 11 a.m. And I was like, gosh, I have so many priorities and projects. And I'm trying to balance all these things. But I got to show up because I was at the last one. It's like, you see the... You know, you're you're there in the meeting. You see everyone else who's there. It's super engaging. The instructor is live with you. And it's like, I felt some level of accountability and responsibility to like be there. And had I not had that, like if it was just a block on my calendar where I was, I've tried this before, you know, like calendar blocking and I'm like, work on, you know, course. It's like, it would never happen because I would let the other priorities take over the morning because they felt more pressing and people are waiting on things for me in Slack and whatever. But because there was a timeliness and there was the accountability and just the reality of like, I'm going to show up and show my face just like everyone else is, I did it. And that's like, I think that that is actually the really powerful force at work in cohort-based courses and other experiences that are built around community and accountability. Like, I think that's why they really, really work. The social accountability is the big factor. I think so. For me, in my experience, that aligns with, yes, like self-paced course have completion rates of like two to 5%, cohort-based courses, 80%. And so the data backs it up. And I, in my own experience, when I've tried to buy a self-paced course, even ones that I've like, put a lot of money into, um, even ones that I've spent like $500 on, um, which is not that far off from a price of a cohort-based course, I've just not been able to get through it. They've been like, you have three months to do the material and I just cannot. (laughs) It's like... I think it's even worse when you have an indefinite time window and you just own it because I I don't feel like there's ever like this light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm like, I'll get to it eventually. Yeah, And even worse, if it's free, like I feel like I place less value on it for some reason. Like there's a sunk cost fallacy where I'm like... I just joined a jujitsu gym and I spend a lot of money on it. I'm like, well, I better get my money's worth. I better actually go to these classes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it works. Exactly. Yeah, it's like Parkinson's law that work expands to fill the amount of time available for its completion. So if you have a course with an indefinite, you know, end time that you can just do it whenever you'll never do it. What are some other surprising things that you've learned about learning since working at Maven? Good question. (laughs) Um, Surprising things that I've learned about learning. It's really amazing the amount of transformation that's possible in a really short time window, like one to two weeks, when you just show up, like when you just, like, it's, it's, it's amazing how much you can condense. Like I'm thinking about comparing it to college and thinking about like the amount of material that we would cover in a semester where just someone is droning on at you and comparing that to more material oftentimes in like a one week course, but it's practical and you're doing projects and you're in breakout rooms and you're sort of like, you're having to actually, um, apply your learnings immediately. Like someone is teaching you something and then they're like, okay, now go, you know, now go write your own growth model. You have 15 minutes and then you're going to present it to your peers. And like, Mm. you think like, there's no way, like I need more time to think, but you actually can get so far. It's like astounding. I just think I'm really impressed at the rate of learning that is possible for people when when the constraints are there. Like mm-hmm. when the accountability is there, when the time constraint is there. Um, and when you know if you if you get this done today, you can bring it to feed, you know, a feedback session tomorrow, the AMA with the with the teacher, with the instructor. Um, so that's probably, yeah, the the amount of student transformation that is possible. And also just like I mean, being in a cohort-based course now, I'm like, it, this is fun. Like, I'm reconnected mm. with the actual fun of learning. And I think a lot of us have, like, gotten out of touch with that. I used to really enjoy, like, watching YouTube videos and, like, the Khan Academy and all these, like, things in, like, high school and college when I was trying to teach myself concepts. And with a really engaging professor, you get a little bit of that. You're like, oh, this is kind of fun. Like, this, like, math guy is kind of funny. Uh, but it's just, like, a next level of, like, wow, learning is so cool. Like, how amazing that we have this ability to just learn and and, the, yeah. the other thing I heard in your answer is that uh, maybe there's an active component uh, or or maybe maybe action is a critical component of learning in that, you know, there, you, you have to have the theoretical underpinnings in many cases. But if you just have that, it's maybe not as impactful as putting it into action and getting into the arena and trying it yourself. You know, you could take a course on web design, but until you you know, you write some CSS and like actually try to build something yourself, it's all in my experience, it's been kind of temporary. Like I, I kind of forget yeah. it faster. hundred percent, hundred percent. I think the like immediate application, like maybe there's some relationship here with like how much time passes between when you learn the thing and when you have to apply it. And I feel like the shorter that time window, the more likely that thing is to stick with you for longer, because that has just been my experience of like, literally, I mean, we, it's like 10 minutes after you learn the thing you're, you're building your own and you're like, well, I guess, you know, we'll figure it out as we go here. Um, But yeah, I have definitely found that to be true. Have you learned anything about the core drivers of why people uh, sign up for courses in the first place? Like what, what are kind of the, like, why do people want to learn? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, And it is something that I think I'm still in the thick of trying to figure out, which is like, I, I think that a lot of us get into professional careers, graduate college, these startups, consultancies, doing what we're doing. And we have this idea that we're going to learn everything we need to learn on the job. And like on the job learning is going to provide all that we need. And if we like run into a problem, like maybe we'll Google it. We're obviously Googling things every day. We're like looking at maybe little videos on YouTube. We're like, we're like learning how to use a new tool. We're watching Amplitude's like, you know, (laughs) mini course thing. But I don't, I think I'm trying to figure out if there are separate segments of people, if there are sort of naturally people who just like learning and are like motivated by the idea of continuing to learn online. I do believe there's a subset of people, but I don't know as if it only applies to a subset of people or if it's actually something that's buried in all of us that we've lost touch with. I want to believe the secondary mm-hmm. option, but I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, and 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 the reality is like, and some people have figured this out, which is that like dedicating like 10% of your time, 90% of your job still goes of your time still goes to your work projects and like things you need to get done and and doing your work things. But if 10% of your time goes to like up-leveling yourself and teaching yourself new skills, and I found this to be extremely true for my um, career. We talked about this with like the CXL growth mini degree program a little bit. Uh, 
just 10% of your time, like you can accelerate your career so profoundly. Um, and I don't know yet. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know how many people are in the stages of figuring this out. I don't know if this is true for everyone because then there's also the just in time learning. So that's maybe like an aspirational learning, you know, Mm -hmm. bucket, which is like, um, people that just like, like to learn to learn and are like, Oh, maybe one day I'll like, I'll be a head of product. So let me take this like product leadership class. Um, and then on the other side, I think there's the just in time learning, which I'm not, I'm not sure where cohort based courses fit into that. I'm not sure if they're actually the right solution. They might not be for a just in time learning concept. I think they could be when the concept is very complex, like the AI courses on Maven are selling really, really well. Cause people are like, I want to learn this now. Yes. Let me send it to a course. Now let me meet other people who are interested in learning this now. But the just-in-time learning is like the, I have a problem at work and like, I've just been tasked with writing a strategy plan and, and I don't know how to do it. Or like, you know, I'm, I am being laid off and I need to find another job. And like, now is a real moment for me to like figure something out. So that's, that's the more just-in-time learning that I think there's also a bucket of learners that fall into that. So that framework of sort of aspirational just-in-time learning, I've been I came, I've been playing around with, I came up with it and I'm like, does that apply all the time? Maybe. So yeah. Do you think that like one or the other, like there's a greater level of satisfaction or completion? I would imagine just heuristically uh, that most people who have like a real use case, like a real end result they want to accomplish, like that's going to have a much more like inherent drive to complete and like put that into action versus like, I just really want to explore interest and like learn how to paint or something like, you know, like where it's a little bit more open-ended, like I would imagine that the former is a little bit more like focus. For sure. I don't think, yes. And, and I don't think it aligns entirely with that. The aspirational learning is not outcomes focused because it very much can be like, you can take a course on becoming, there's a course on Maven, become a 20 hour CEO, which is like work 20 hours a week and like make more than you've ever made. And that is maybe an aspirational. Sounds awesome. Yeah, that's like an aspirational course, maybe for someone that's currently working in a startup, but that doesn't mean there's no outcome. That doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, you know, three years down the road. It's just not the just in time learning of the I have a problem at work right now. So I think that they can exist in both buckets. I think that outcome is really, really important in either in either bucket, like feeling like you got some kind of breakthrough moment, light bulb moment, you know, transformation thing out of it. Without that, I think that's the problem with the theoretical, you know, not project-based things. And so even like an artifact that is just a plan for how you're going to get to being a CEO in, in three years, that is an artifact. Like that is something that I think feels good coming out of a course with and feels like I got my money's worth and like, okay, now I'm going to put this into action. Even if it doesn't drive sort of outcomes immediately, it still feels like a tangible learning. I think that's the key is like, did I get a tangible learning? Um, totally. I'm gonna. I, I, I do apologize. I'm asking you all the most esoteric, deep questions. But <laughs> so I consider myself in the bucket, or I used to be. Uh, I'm kind of transitioning a little bit now that I'm running an agency, and I I'm trying to focus a lot more and do more just in time learning. But I definitely put myself in that bucket of. I just enjoy learning. Um, you know, in the past, I learned German, Spanish. Like I would, I play guitar. Like there's so many different skills, and I just like picking them up. Um, with those, I've recently tried to have no end in mind. And there's this word that I've used. It's like teleological. Uh, so it's like with mm. an end in mind. And a, a friend was asking me about jujitsu and she's like, what's your goal? Like, when are you going to get to the blue, like blue belt and purple belt and this and that? And I was like, hey, I'm just trying to enjoy the process. <laughs> yeah, love that. And same thing with, with playing guitar. Like, I don't really have, if I think about it, like goals or like any sort of framework or outcomes. I'm just kind of enjoying getting better. And following Mm -hmm. my interests. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is really a question, but I'm sure you have things like that in your life. Like you you mentioned that you learned a language. Yeah. Yeah. I speak Spanish and Portuguese, but Spanish. We could switch to Spanish right now if you want. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Vamos. (laughs) But um, I did. So Spanish, I'm sure was more like it was prop for fun, right? Like it's not necessarily something you you need for a job or like anything that's going to like have, I guess, like clear, like utility in, in like a very utilitarian sense. Well, interestingly, my way of learning Spanish was I actually moved to Spain when I was 16. So I was a foreign exchange student for a year um, as a high schooler. And that was actually, so I've always applied this to my career in life as a way of sort of what feels like a forced learning. I mean, I had no choice. I arrived in Spain. I did not speak Spanish. I was with a Spanish host family. I went to Spanish high school. I figured it out. Like three months in, I was understanding everything. And then 
five months in, I was totally fluent and I've maintained the fluency to this day, mostly because it was so hard that I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not losing this. <laughs> um, so I actually think the imposed accountability, I try to impose, and I, I've heard people say this with languages as well, which is like, if you have a reason, if you're like partner's family speaks the language, or you have a trip coming up in three months, or you have like a real reason, you're going to learn more. I think that which, helps. Yeah. Yeah. It's separate from the love of learning. And that's also amazing and beautiful. And I have had seasons of learning, like the last, I, I think I kind of approach things in seasons. So the last big season for me was improv. I did like improv one, two, and three, no goal. I am not trying to be an improviser. I'm not trying to perform anywhere. It was just pure, like, this will be fun. This will be a challenge. I have to get up on stage and not know what's going to come out of my mouth and be okay with that. And there wasn't really a goal. And then now I'm like in a season of, I'm going to learn the hand pan drum, which is just like, this like instrument that I'm mesmerized by. No goal, but I just, you know, I'm ready for like a new season of learning. So yeah, I think both. So it's still, it still helps to apply some of those models like that you would use in a just in time or like um, a very focused sense of learning. Cause I I did the same thing with Spanish. Like I definitely have my end vision, like the reason I really wanted to learn it. Cause it gets hard. Like you go through these slogs where you're like, am I really improving? (laughs) And then you look back and of course you are. But then the other thing I did was I set up uh, inputs. So I really focused on like the showing up aspect. Um, when I, I also traveled, I was spending a summer in Spain, I was in Valencia. Uh, so the immersion helped, but then I would also read for 20 minutes every day, a book in Spanish. And I would listen to a podcast episode every day in Spanish, but I had certain things that I would do during that learning curve. Um, and I, I guess I also did have milestones with that, uh, European language score where it's like B1, B2, C1, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I suppose if you're serious about learning a subject, like it still helps, even if it's recreational, even if it's purely for fun to -hmm. set some of those parameters as well, just because human nature, you know, human psychology, it's like things are going to get tough. You're going to go through a plateau. So having those in place helps you push through that plateau. Yeah. I actually think like if you are really in love with the process of learning, giving yourself accountability goals helps you continue to love the process of learning because it helps you not get stuck in the slog. Like it's counterintuitive, but I think similar to this philosophy of how imposing constraints on something help you, helps you be more creative. I think the same thing is true here. Like imposing gentle accountability for yourself or with, you know, going to the gym with someone else or whatever makes you love the process that much more and mm-hmm. actually makes you in the long term continue to love it. Like continue to love learning, continue to pick up new things that you want to learn. Um, when you have a little bit of like, okay, let me like help nudge myself along so I don't get stuck in the slog and get so frustrated that I throw in a towel. Yeah. Um, Especially during the difficult phases, because I feel like with the gym uh, analogy, it's like eventually it becomes for me, at least a habit where I feel bad when I don't do it. But during the early days, I, I hated it. <laughs> I had to set up systems and I would go to the gym with a friend and all of that stuff just to get through that hard part. And Spanish yeah. now I really enjoy, like I have a couple friends who I do weekly or bi-weekly Spanish chats with, and it's just for fun. But like, nice. I had to go through that phase where it was actually pretty difficult to quote unquote, get out of bed and like do the thing. Yeah. But now it's like kind of just for the sake of, of doing it that I continue practicing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine having to have learned Spanish. I mean, if I weren't in Spain, like, I don't think I would be fluent in Spanish today. It just was, right. simply, there was no choice. If I was going to communicate with anyone, I was going to learn. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so to switch topics, another thing that you mentioned in the podcast intake form, uh, kind of offhand, was this hot take. <laughs> you had a hot take that most things in the world are marketing. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by that? So to go back to the Seth Godin quote, which is how he defines marketing, and I consider him the god of marketing, so I believe in him. And he says, marketing is humanity, the stories we tell each other about who we are, ourselves and others. You know, I'm I'm butchering it, but it's like along those lines. I think most, when you show up to a conversation, like what you decide to share, how you decide to show up, the stories you decide to tell based on who you're speaking to, who you decide to meet, how you, literally how most of us operate in the world. If we believe in this, Um, definition of marketing, which I think is really important. Like it is not influencing people to do things they don't want to do. It is not the sleazy advertising approach. Like that's not how I define marketing. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's really, really important to get clear is like, I'm talking about marketing is storytelling. And I think the fabric of our world is built on stories. Um, And that is why, I mean, I've talked about it with some friends recently in the concept of the dating, like 
we, it's, we joke about it. We're like, it's a pipeline. Like how many qualified leads <laughs> do you have? Like, and, and, but the reality is like, that is actually how people approach it. And then like, based on how they've marketed themselves on their profile, like well, how do you show qualify your one leads? Way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yep. Like, oh, we'll start with like maybe a FaceTime call just to see if you're a right fit. Like, how is this a good prospect? Like it's all, it's marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I've been like, just, you know, putting this idea on the world and seeing how people respond. Cause I think maybe not everything is marketing, but a lot more things are marketing than we realize. And that's great. Like there's nothing wrong with that. I think that what's been interesting is people outside the field of marketing have reacted very negatively to that idea. And that's because I think marketing is kind of misunderstood um, for people like modern day marketing is so different than I think what a lot of people who don't work in marketing think of marketing as. And so there's like, and I also feel a little like allergic to the idea. I'm like, oh, is everything really marketing? Like that sounds gross, but what if it were true? You know, why does marketing get a, a bad rap? Yeah, it's a good question. Because I, I also have that. I, I grimace a little bit. I'm like, uh, there's something yeah. like, do something I want to believe that everything because it, 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 maybe it's like it feels a little artificial. It's yeah. like, oh, like I'm putting yeah. on kind of a mask and like I'm using yeah. that to like, like it kind of feels like that to me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you don't want to have to advertise your product. You just want the product to sell itself, I guess. Totally, totally, totally. Which that's also marketing, like how you strategically decide to show up, like how, which parts of yourself you present. It's not manipulative. It's just, I'm going to surface this piece, this piece and this part of myself in this conversation because I think this is what's going to resonate with you, like that sort of energy. Um, I think that there's like a podcast, Everyone Hates Marketers, right? I know I've listened to that one a few times and it, it is like a funny, it's a funny, reality um i think because there's a lot of us it's we're so we're we're sort of an easy group of people to dislike and it's misunderstood and it's like seen as manipulative and no one likes a manipulator and it's seen as sales it's well it's seen as also also i think sales has evolved a lot but it's seen as like old version of sales and old versions of advertising which is like and also i think the consumerism of like you don't have enough this is what you need, you know, to make your life better. And like mm. marketing is constantly pushing. Yeah. Like agitating this, those pain points. And and what's interesting is like, I think many of us who are, or at least I'm, I'm in marketing, but like marketing for learning, like, and then previously I was like marketing for community for women in tech. So it's like, I haven't actually worked on any like product that would be like a physical product that you need in your life, but I'm really actually trying to make people's lives better <laughs> through, or at least that's how I see it. Um, so I think that's why like, you know, the Seth Godin definition of marketing aligns so deeply with me because it's, it's not, it's not manipulative. It's not icky. It's actually it's actually very synergistic. Is that a word? Like there's a lot of synergy when marketing is really working and it's really influencing the people that could both, that could most benefit from the message you have to share. Mm -hmm. It also seems to me like sort of one of those hard truths about reality that even if you opt out of the game, you're still sort of playing the game because at at the core, everybody has desired outcomes. Everybody wants things for themselves. They want a certain lifestyle. They want a certain partner. They want to achieve certain things. And even if you say like, oh, like, I don't believe that I'm like storytelling or doing marketing or like, no, I'm just like, it is what it is. I'm just the facts. Like you're still playing the same game. You're just like taking a different route to getting there. Right. So I think it's, it's just one of those truths. It's like in nature, right. Peacocks develop these like really colorful tails to, (laughs) to do the mating dance. And it's like, there, there's versions of that, that humans do as well, Uh, whether, you know, it's about mating or getting a job or like whatever the. The kind of domain is so i can i can see yeah. that it's just sort of this underlying infrastructure and like some people are aware of it and some people are not aware of it and yeah. some people are aware and opt out but that doesn't change the fact that it still exists it's it, at that base layer I think that's why I like servicing the idea because I'm like what if no one is saying this <laughs> and like what if we just talk about it you know mm-hmm. so that's kind of why I was like let me include this as a hot take <laughs> I like it it's a true hot take uh mm-hmm. if you were to argue maybe like the opposite maybe not the opposite side but like you did say maybe there's some exceptions. So what exceptions would you make with regards to the most things are marketing hot take? I don't think, I think a lot of things in the human world are marketing, but I don't think things that are natural, like I don't, I don't think about, 
I don't think nature would be aligned with the philosophy that everything is marketing. Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of things that just are and sort of those things that come up for me that just are in the natural world and, and yeah, just exist. Those things to me don't feel like marketing, but when humans get involved, I think that's when we make everything marketing. Mm. (laughs) What things in the natural world do you think don't apply? Just trees and plants and mushrooms. Mushrooms. (laughs) Mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> that was random. I was just like imagining the like synergy. Like, you know, the um the there have been some documentaries and books on this, like the secret life of or sort of the networks that mushrooms have. With oh, I watched other, that documentary. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Paul Stamets talks about his mushroom trip where he like climbs up into a tree during a lightning storm. I don't know yeah. if you watched the same one, but <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about, but <laughs> <laughs> But it was it was quite interesting. It talk, mostly yeah. talked about like my, like mycelium is that the thing? Uh, but it talked yes, about yes, like yes. Fu- fungus networks, right? Exactly. And how they're like That's the largest what... organism on on Earth. Yeah. So organisms don't feel like marketing, or like elements don't feel like marketing. I don't know the sun, the wind. I'm not going to try to say that's marketing. It's not. Like mm-hmm. na- nature is not. But I think yeah, I think most places where humans get involved, they're imposing marketing on things. Mm-hmm. Where there's a conscious desire, there's a form of marketing behind it. Yes. Because it's storytelling. Marketing is storytelling and humans come with stories. And we, we, stories are so powerful, I think, to us as beings. And that's why we impose stories on things. We, we pull stories out of things. We create stories. We, we just, we're operating in stories. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. What do you think your superpower is as a marketer? What do you do differently than everybody else? I think. I have a very, it comes very naturally to me to zoom way out and to think about things holistically and to think about things from this, like we've talked about a little bit, the first principles, the student first in Maven's case perspective, the the real wide world. And like, I spend time there and I like that. So I like working at early stage startups where broadly speaking, I'm very much responsible for thinking about how does this fit in the business strategy, but not only that, like how does this fit in the wider market? How does this fit in like what we're even trying to do here at all? And what is the problem we're trying to solve here at all? Um, so like even with email lifecycle, I'm like zooming out for a moment to be like, is email lifecycle or is like what I've built here as an initial pitch proposal, even the right way to solve the problem we're trying to solve? Is email even the right place to do it? Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's that I have that, you know, I can't not care about that. I think I come into any project and I care deeply about the broader perspective. And I always have that zoom out period. And then I also go super, like, just am like a super executor in terms of like going really, really deep into the details. I love like grammar and editing, like content and messaging and tiny word changes and like conversion rate optimization, like all the really small minutiae details. And I love like, I love the, the going deep and then pulling back out and the going deep and the pulling back out. And I think I have like a good way of that helps me stay. I think prioritization is the hardest thing at at an early stage startup. And this ability like helps me stay focused on the goals and stay clear in like what I'm prioritizing and why, and also make sure that like the execution of anything that I have decided to prioritize is going to be really, really good. How do you prioritize? Do you have mental models for that? Because I've been at early stage startups and, and the thing there is like, there's less red tape, but there's so mm. many things you could do. You could pretty much do anything and like it's going to have some net positive impact because you've done nothing so far, right? Yeah. So it's like in that world of like endless possibility where there's no other teams working on this. That HubSpot, yeah. there was a team working on everything and I had to like find these like needles in the haystack for new things to do. Yeah. But at a startup, you're like, I could do content. I could do SEO. I could do video. I could do yeah. this. I could do that. Life's, like yeah. all these different options. Yeah. How do you focus? Yeah. I love... This is the course I'm currently in, the Startup Growth course on Maven with Matt Lerner. So I love, he has a program, Startup Course Strengths, and I've read his ebook that he's written cover to cover many times. And he discusses this concept of your rate limiting step. And I coordinate everything around rate limiting steps. So in terms of like, what that means is like sketching out the funnel, the general, you know, journey that prospects are going through to ultimate end goal conversion, you know, enrolling in a course in Maven's case. And I figure out, yeah, where is our rate limiting step? Is it activation? Is it retention? Is it acquisition? Like you can you can sketch out the business as it is today and understand 
first, I think before you even start to brainstorm projects and start to be like what you were saying, like we could launch a blog, like we could build a survey, like, you know, just first focus on the rate limiting step and then deprioritize everything else. And anything that's not going to impact your rate limiting step, like is not a priority right now. And until mm-hmm. I think that is that step of your funnel is no longer your primary rate limiting step, you should continue to focus 80% of your time on that. Like take the 80-20 rule, but 80% of your time should be focused on your on projects that are going to impact your rate limiting step. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So first off, you're getting like a mental model or a landscape of how the business grows and then mapping out different kind of nodes in the system or steps in the funnel, whatever model you create for it. And then yes. you're finding the biggest bottleneck where the highest impact is going to occur if you create change there. Yes. It's all about impact. Yeah. That makes sense. So start with the problem and then add solutions, not start with the solution and try to find a problem. Yes. (laughs) Well said. Very important. Um, (laughs) What's what's something that you have changed your mind about with regards to marketing, business, anything in this context? I think it's related to the last question, which is something I learned from Gaga and the CEO at Maven, um, which is a difference between how growth teams and product teams should think about things. So I'm someone who naturally, like, I love the idea that we're going to improve someone's quality of life. I love like the feel good metrics. I love, you know, the small changes that like, yeah, that feel really good. And in a product perspective, if effort is low, like we talk a lot about low hanging fruit and we think a lot about effort or people often use that when thinking about prioritization. And what I've learned at Maven is that as a product team, yes, effort matters. But as a growth team, effort is not a consideration in whether or not you should prioritize something. Like it is counterintuitive, but it is all about impact. Or it feels counterintuitive at first when you learn it. Because I think a lot of the popular culture out there is like, I just like use this framework. And actually, mm-hmm. when you're a growth team, impact matters so much more than effort. Like you shouldn't be doing things that are just because they're low effort. You should only be doing things that you are like really, really, really high imp- high impact. Matt Lerner also says this, that like 90% of your startup's growth is going to come from like 10% of the stuff you do. So it's going to be like the one channel that you're going to figure out, you know, or the one thing that's going to take off. Um, and so that approach of like, it's all about impact and, and running sort of rough. This was not a natural part of my process before, but but if I'm going to pitch an idea, like something that we have at Maven is you, you do a rough impact analysis. So you actually go in and you look like, okay, this sounds like a great idea in theory, but how many people are actually visiting this page? And how many, if we were to double the conversion rate, which is already maybe hard to do, how you know many more conversions would that likely actually lead to? And then you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, five more people. <laughs> you right. know, it's like so disappointing. <laughs> Yeah, like in the best case scenario, this wouldn't even matter that much. That's why I love exactly. doing models before like working with anybody on content or SEO. I'm like, look, in your best case scenario, it's going to be like 1% of your lead volume. Like, are you yeah. excited about that? Are you getting out of bed in the morning for that 1%? You know, it's, it's sad. like, no, it's, it's, you know, it's we rough. can't even, the biggest swing we could take is still going to be a small, you know, base hit. Um, do you totally. think that co- like effort correlates in any way to impact? Only when there's true low-hanging fruit, which I think at most startups with smart people, there's not a ton of low-hanging fruit. Like we've done that already. So sure, like sometimes if I'm on a new project and I'm like, oh wow, you know, this is clearly going to be high impact and it's such low effort. How could you not have thought of that? But like, I don't think most startup smart startup teams really have that much of that. So in terms of maybe the other side of the question, which is like, are high impact things likely to always be high effort? Sometimes I think there are usually mm-hmm. ways to make them lower effort. I like one of the things that tied into a cultural moment at Alpha, the last startup that I was at, which is a community of 100,000 women in tech, was there was the great resignation was happening. This is like a year and a half ago. And I was like, we should, we should, you know, we should jump on this moment. But how do we do this? I'm a marketing team of one. Like, what can I do? I wanted to, I came up with this idea that I wanted to create this, should I quit my job sort of quiz analysis. And it would be, uh, we would create it as like a content piece. And then, you know, it was gated with the email address at the end. And um, that's how that was like the thinking behind it. It was literally created in a day. It was like a type form. It was just an embedded type form on our site. There was a really smart like LinkedIn strategy behind it. Um, so we were like featured in LinkedIn news and all these things. And it ended up being not only like the, the highest driver of any, we had like 10,000 email addresses come through. In the first week, which was huge for us, huge. And it like, if you Google, should I quit my job quiz? 
alpha still ranks like number three, like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, we're a tiny site with like, so, so it just like hit all the markers. It was one of the most impactful activities I did. And it was not high effort. It was like a day of effort. So right. I don't think that it's always correlated, but, but sometimes it is. Yeah. I've, I've seen the same thing. It's like, there, there are silver bullets that are easy to do that have outsized results. And I think that's really rare. My heuristic with low hanging fruit is that um, it's it's a much there's no alpha there's no competitive alpha there so like if it's low hanging fruit like there's going to be a ton of other people trying to pick at it and if it's easy for you to do it's going to be easy for other people to do too so I tend to look for things mapping towards impact first obviously and making sure that the impact sizing is is high enough to be worth it but then looking at your relative strengths and what is what is hard to do generally that is relatively easier for you to do. And it's still yeah. going to be hard. And mm-hmm. that's where like you you escape some of the competition. But what like doing a podcast is pretty hard, especially like consistently uh, doing interview after interview. But there's traits about David and I who run the podcast that make it easier for us to do it. Like we're typically doing coffees like this all the time, lunches like yeah. this all the time. We enjoy asking good questions. We enjoy doing research and learning about this stuff. Whereas like for most people, it's very difficult to go, you know, four, six, eight episodes and continue on. But it's 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 still difficult, but it's relatively easier for us to do it than other people. So I, I look for totally. those things. Totally. I love that. I'm going to write that down. That's a really good framework. <laughs> well, it's like with the AI stuff, everybody's like, wow, it's so easy to produce content now. And it's like, yeah, it's also easier for everybody else to do it. So like, where's right. your competitive advantage? And maybe, you know, it's like easy to produce six or eight articles per month with AI. Might be harder to produce 200 and interweave subject matter quotes in the content itself using AI. Like if you can figure yeah. out that system, now that that's we're getting exactly. somewhere, right? Yeah. One of the first ways that we used AI at Maven was um, I worked on this project with our CTO, which was to infuse AI-powered recommendations. So to like, and he built this all out. Obviously, he's a brilliant technical mind behind this. I just set up the marketing front of it, but um, it's it was immediately like we had a 3x increase in all our metrics when we sent people AI powered um, recommendations, like course recommendations for you. Uh, and that was like one of the, that's like a unique thing that like we can do knowing what we know about someone and which wait lists they've joined and what's been their activity on the site and the courses that we have available and all the info that's like on a courses page and in a courses syllabus, like we can match people to what they would be looking for. Um, and so, yeah, that's like one way that we've infused AI into our work that is I think kind of touches on that a unique strength of the business. I love that. Yeah, that comes from something that you that innately springs from the product too. So it gives you that relative advantage. Um, yeah. You do realize also that I'm asking you like the hardest podcast questions that I've done in a long time. So I hope I hope you're enjoying this. We're doing great. I'm great. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's if you're cool, let's switch to something easier and do some rapid great. fire questions. Oh boy, will that be easier? Yeah, okay. much easier. Um, who do you admire professionally and why? Well, <laughs> have I made it clear that I admire Seth Godin? Um, yes. I I also admire Wes, the co-founder of Maven. So she's the reason I joined Maven to work for, you know, she she sort of hired me and brought me onto the team. I think she's one of the smartest marketers out there, Wes Ko. I think you told me that she's the best marketer in the world. I probably did say that. Mm-hmm. She was Seth Godin's kind of protege, like worked with Seth to launch the Alt MBA. So I think about working for Wes is like working for Seth, one step removed. Um, so we have the grandfather and the mother. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, yeah, those are two. That, those are two people that I really admire professionally. If you could create your own category in Jeopardy, what would it be, and would you get every question right? God, this is so hard because I think I'm better at like covering a lot of surface area versus like being deep in any one thing. So maybe it would have to be broad. It would have to be like, um, (laughs) like random. It would be like literally like random trivia because like I've read a lot of books all across so many different disciplines. So it would be something that would, I know that's a strange answer, but I think that it would be like grab bag. It would be like, oh, there's you, you need somebody in your team who does the miscellaneous category. Well, (laughs) miscellaneous. There you go. (laughs) Um, which talent would you most like to have? Well, I always wanted to be a triple threat and unfortunately I never could sing. So I was a dancer and I was an actress, but I couldn't sing. So unfortunately, Mm. yeah, I think I'd want that one. (laughs) It's a common answer. I I say all the time. It's also my answer. So yeah, it would just be beautiful to sing with that angelic voice. It's hard to develop. Yeah. 
do you consider yourself more scientific or artistic? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think if, since the word is artistic and not creative, I would choose scientific. I've always thought of myself as a creative first, like I was a photographer who then built a business around it and I was a dancer. Um, but I think I'm, I'm more of a sort of type A, so I'm more of like a scientific person broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How you described your process for figuring out new channels and new techniques life cycle. Also, I feel like resembles almost a scientific method mm -hmm. where you're starting totally. with first principles, building hypotheses. It, it sounded a little bit like a loose version of the scientific method. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't love like throwing spaghetti at the wall. That does not feel very good to me. Mm -hmm. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? Overrated virtue. Um, hmm. That's tough. What are some common ones that people say? <laughs> Well, you got to think what what's revered by society. That's so, what I'm trying to think. Yeah, patience is a virtue. Um, uh, That's important. Politeness. That's important too. I, I thought about politeness, um, but I was like, no, I think that actually matters. Courage. Um, yeah, ambition. Mm -hmm. What else is a virtue? It's it's hard to think. It's of also interesting that these are all sort of U.S. virtues, right? Like these are very U.S. specific. I would say kind of American virtues. Right. So I think like self-reliance, I would say, is overemphasized. What was the exact word you used in your question? Uh, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? Overrated. Yeah. Yeah. I think like self-reliance, like do it yourselfness. I have, but it's interesting because I've always prided myself on that. And then as I've gotten older, I realized the incredible power and beauty of like having actually a network of people that are looking out for you where you help each other. And I think in American society, we like extol this, like live in a suburban home with your family alone. And like, actually, that's not the best way for us to be as humans. So I would say self-reliance. That's an interesting answer. I agree with you entirely. I only just learned how to ask for help like two years ago. And it's, it's yeah. been revolutionary. Oh, yeah. And people love to help you. And you build better relationships when you let people help you. That's been like the biggest um, wow moment for me. Yeah. Life hack. <laughs> yeah. Life hack for real. Asking for help. <laughs> <laughs> What's a career choice that you considered but did not pursue? Yeah, I, I considered being a full-time creative. I really considered um I had an LLC. I was running a photo business. I had a lot of clients. I was kind of I didn't go into weddings, but I was like at the point of like thinking about going into weddings. And so I really thought about do I want to run my own business? I was like 22. So this was like graduating school. Do I want to run my own LLC and do this full-time photography thing? And it was just too, it was just too much. It was too overwhelming of an idea, I think. Yeah. Do you think you would ever go back to something like that? I think uh, one day I will run my own business for sure. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a future path. Um, but I don't think it will be, it will not be a creative business. It will not be photography. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. Um well, thank you so much. This conversation was yeah. awesome. I want to, I would just first off, like, is there anything that I didn't ask you that we should talk about? What am I missing? Let me think. I don't think so. <laughs> well, in that case, I love what we talked about. <laughs> this was incredibly fun. We got to, we got to thank wrap you. in a free will conversation, which has yeah. been my goal since I started this podcast. It's the first time we've been able to do it. Oh. So, Thank you so much for that. I don't think I had a very good answer. It's funny. I never, I never really think about that question. So that's, yeah, that's an interesting one. <laughs> I think about it all the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Consciousness, free will. Like what, mm. is, what does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean? Mm. What, what is the self? Is the self an illusion? Mm. One of the first conversations I ever had with my co-founder, David, um, we, we had known each other for a little bit. The, the, the story that I tell is often this is the first time and it's not true. Um, yeah. But it was like 8 a.m. At, <laughs> at like a HubSpot. We were at HubSpot's marketing kickoff and it was really early in the morning, groggy, drinking coffee. And David saddles up to me on the bleachers and he's like, hey, man, do you believe in free will? Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. 
I haven't yeah. even woke up yet. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I also love the like, what's something you recently changed your mind on? Like, that's a question that I often ask people to like get them thinking. And, and that sort of is a really um, good sign. Someone that like is comfortable with changing their mind. I find that as like a, an undervalued. If you had asked me what's an undervalued thing, yeah. I think changing your mind. I sometimes Being wish open. I were more stubborn. I, I feel like I switch. I change my mind all the time. Like yeah. even within the context of SEO and content and this, like with a compelling argument, I'm like, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to promote or where can people find you online? Um, I'm just Lonnie, Lonnie SF. And um, LinkedIn is like my favorite social network. <laughs> Um, but I'm also on Twitter at Lonnie Staff. And there's not really anything I want to promote. Just the ideas that we talked about here. So right. I, I want to promote this very podcast. <laughs> very cool. And we'll, we'll do our best to promote this. Spread yeah. far and wide. Love Thank it. you very much. <laughs> Thank you.